Well, church. Well, church. Let. Okay. Hello. All right. Great. Church, let me invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 21 this morning as we continue our work this spring through the book of Genesis, specifically taking us all the way through the life of Abraham, life and death of Abraham. So we're in Genesis 21 today. You'll find that on page 15 of the Pew Bible this morning. And while you're turning your way there, I do want to just let you know, as already been mentioned, next Sunday is Easter Sunday. You all aware of that? And uh, it will be, of course, a glorious day to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. The, the choir has been preparing uh, since probably January uh, to, to help us to rejoice in God's Word. I can almost guarantee the sermon next Sunday will be better than the sermon today, which may not be saying much. So, um, but I, what I do want to uh, let you know is that even as we want to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord on Sunday, next Sunday, uh, you are going to be significantly enhanced in your awe and in your joy in the resurrection of Jesus if you first mourn his death with us on Friday. And so we're going to gather this Friday, as we do every year, for our Good Friday service. And we're going to consider the work of Christ on the cross. We're going to do that largely by singing wonderful hymns that are dear to us and reading the passion events from Scripture. We'll take the Lord's Supper. There'll be a very brief message from God's Word. So let me invite you to seriously consider and pray about joining us this Friday at 7 p.m. for our Good Friday service. Well, here we are in Genesis chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, who Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old. When his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a great nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. 
For she said, let me not look on the death of this child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for the Lord has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of the army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, So will you deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about the well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore the place was called Beersheba, because, these, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now. And we pray that you would help us even as we open our hearts to you. We trust this is your truth. You have it for us to consider this morning. And so we ask you to help through your spirit, through the preaching of your word, that we might come to know ourselves better, might come to know our God better, and might rejoice more fully in the salvation which he has provided in our Lord Jesus Christ. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in Alexander Dumas' book, The Man in the Iron Mask, he imagines that Louis XIV, the king of France, had... uh, identical twin sons. And so the question that that Dumas raises, well, if you have identical sons, who will be the king? In fact, there's fear that there might be a civil war between these boys over the throne of France. And so the, the king chose one of his sons to be heir. And then once the boys reach a certain age, he took the other son and put him behind a, a hideous iron mask to spend the rest of his days, so that no one would see who he was. Demos then raises the question, if you ever read the book, did he grab the right son? Did he take the right one? Well, this morning we come to a story of of a king, if you will, with two sons. One is to be his heir, the other could not be. 
We, of course, see Isaac, the the heir of the promise, is finally born. We've been waiting for him for quite some time now. And yet, right after the birth of Isaac, we see that that he, he and Abraham are immediately confronted with two threats to the promises of God. One, his older brother Ishmael, the other, a neighboring king. And so once again in the story of Abraham, we find that God needs to work in order to ensure that the promises of his covenant are fulfilled. And so you can really break this chapter down into three scenes. In fact, uh, the editors of my Bible did just that. We begin with the arrival of a supernatural heir. The arrival of an heir. You note verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So finally, they have their son. Amen? I mean, man, we've been waiting quite some time for this boy. And I trust that Sarah's pregnancy will be a cause of great rejoicing. Pregnant with her first son at the age of 90. It's pretty extraordinary, right? And you can imagine, of course, 90-year-old Sarah maybe kept the pregnancy secret for a little while just to make sure she was right, maybe even hid it from Abraham. And then one day she got the courage to tell her husband, perhaps with whispered joy, it happened. I'm pregnant. And the wonderful excitement that would have happened in that family. Of course, the pregnancy uh, can only be hid for so long. These things tend to show themselves, don't they? And so soon the camp was aware that, that the child was on its way. Preparations must have been made amongst the hundreds who have now gathered to Abraham's side. And you could imagine on the day of delivery the hushed silence that descended on the village there as Sarah labored to give birth. And then it all being pierced by the cry of a baby, followed immediately by shouts of joy from the hundreds listening outside. I imagine what a day to remember. What a wonderful day of joy. But it is not simply the joy of a miraculous birth, though it is that, of course. But it is the joy of a miraculous God who brought it about. I mean, does not uh, the, the, the verses here before us emphasize God's faithfulness? The Lord visited Sarah. The Lord did as he promised at the time God had said. Three times in these two verses so that we do not miss it. We're told that God did exactly what he said he would do. And so once again, I tell you, you may be tired of hearing it, but I'm not tired of telling you it, that God's word is faithful. That God's word is dependable. That God will do what he said he will do when he makes a promise. It is as good as done. And so finally we come to the birth of Isaac and we see that God did exactly what he said he would do, exactly when he said he would do it, exactly how he said he would do it, and exactly through whom he said he would do it. This is why we love the Bible. This is why we go verse by verse through passages like Genesis 21. Because it is the word of God and it is fully trustworthy and it is given to us so that we might know our God and might follow him more faithfully. God keeps his promises. Of course, the, the miracle of this promise was that Sarah has been barren from the very beginning. So look, just look back, just to remind us of where we've been. Look back to Genesis 11. And you see there in verse 30, we started here in early January, didn't we? And we read, now Sarah was barren. She had no child. So Sarah can't have children. Now the qu- question, is that a coincidence? No. That's God's plan. 
And in fact, Sarah knew it. Look over in Genesis 16 now, and verse 2. This is Sarah speaking, I believe. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. God has caused me to be infertile. And we say, well, why would God do that? Why would God put this great tragedy upon this woman? Well, it seems to me that, that God is putting barriers in front of his promises. In order that they, they appear to be, or they are, not just appear, they are humanly impossible to bring about God's promises. That only God can do it. And so God promises Sarah again and again and again, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a son, you're going to have a son, and God closes her womb and waits till she's 90, right? And what God is doing is he wants them to believe even God for the impossibility. Remember, in fact, God takes Abraham outside. He says, do you believe me? You're going to have a son. Do you believe that I can do what no man can do? He takes him outside. He says, count the stars in the sky. So shall your descendants be. And we read in Genesis 15 and verse 6, didn't we? Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as what? Remember? Righteousness. So, so God wants them to come to this strong faith. Now, the question, of course, is why does God insist on this kind of faith? Why does God put up barriers and then ask us, do we believe that he'll overcome them? Well, I think the answer is found in Genesis 18, a, a verse uh, that I've, I just find great, uh, great encouragement from. We spend a great deal of time on it. You know, verse 13 and 14, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Shall, uh, shall I... Excuse me, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? And then here it is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And so God is putting up these barriers to his own promises to show that nothing is impossible for God. That God could do anything. He wants to exalt himself. He wants to humble, humble us. And so here we are. She's barren. She waits till she's 90. Abraham's now a hundred, and it's only then that he gives the son of promise. In fact, if you're back in Genesis 21, the, the, the author wants to emphasize the age of Abraham, doesn't he? He says in verse 5, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. hundred years old, that's kind of late to have a kid, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, may, may work out. I mean, you, if you're a hundred, you have to mash your food anyways, right? So you, you, there you go, you just mash Isaac's along with you. Here he is, and we see what we see, don't we, that, that God is trustworthy, but not just trustworthy. What else do we see about God? God is powerful. Powerful. It's almost like God likes to wait to the fourth quarter, and your team's down by 80, and there's 40 seconds left, and he calls the huddle, and he says, okay, you guys ready to win? And you think, what do you mean we're ready to win? We're down by 80? We've got 40 seconds left? I said, I know, it's no problem. You're ready to win. And you say, okay, yeah, I'm ready to win. What do we do? He says, do nothing, just give me the ball. Right? And so you all sit down. God takes the ball. 40 seconds left. You win. And what happens? What's the result? You get the victory. But who gets the glory? God does. God wants to give us the victory as he gets the glory, as he does in Isaac's birth you see great glory to God even there in verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. 
Isaac. Just as God told him to name him in Genesis 17, Abraham is now obeying God. God named the child. His name is Isaac. And then we see further obedience in verse 4 when he circumcises him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. You remember from Genesis 17, we saw that circumcision is the sign of the covenant. And so what Abraham's doing in circumcising Isaac is he is saying to God, I'm going to follow you, and so is my son. I'm going to raise my son to know you. I'm going to point him to you as part of a member of this covenant relationship that we're in. This is very important for us, I think. Uh, We, we in America, we're really good at making sons. Um, But we're not very good at fathering them. In fact, it's astonishing to me that 40% of the children in America, under the age of 18, 40%, do not live in the home with their father. Isn't that extraordinary? Two out of five are not growing up with their dads. I think, I think this is a huge problem in our country. And Abraham looks at Isaac and he says, no, that's not, gonna, that's not how it's going to work with me. Uh, Isaac's, Isaac's going to know God. And he starts taking Isaac to church, if you will. There on day eight, he gets him circumcised. And you could imagine, this would be a great day for her. Abraham, he's worshiping God. God, Isaac is your gift to me. You've given him to me. So I want to raise him to love you. I want to raise him to trust you. God, my son is going to worship you. This is what God wants. You know why God gives us marriage? Malachi 2, why does God bring two together? God, the Bible says, why did I create you one, husband and wife? So that you might produce godly offspring. This is what God is after in our marriages. He wants not us to make, just make children. He wants us to make children who know him and to love him. And this is what Abraham has decreed to do. I'm going to raise my boy to know God. You're my God. He's going to, you're, you're going to be my son's God. You ever put your kids asleep at night and you just lay a hand on their head, dads, and you ever say to them, may your father's God watch over you tonight, my son. May, may your father's God give you sweet dreams tonight, my daughter. You ever, you ever say that to your kids? This is how God seems to introduce himself. He shows up to Isaac a little later, and Isaac says, who are you? And he says, oh, I'm, I'm the God of your daddy. I'm the God of Abraham. And then he shows up to Joseph, and Joseph says, who are you? And he says, well, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I'm the God of your great-granddaddy and your granddaddy and your daddy. That's who I am. And when Abraham circumcises his son, it's a covenantal commitment to raise his son to know the Lord. All of you husbands should aspire to be that kind of father and grandfathers and uncles and all the rest, not just to make kids, but to be a father to them. In fact, one of my favorite stories of a dad and son is the story of John Patton, a Scottish missionary. I read this story from his autobiography at least a couple times a year. I'm sure I've shared it with you. You'll forgive me for doing so again. Patton was born in 1824. He died in 1907. And he went to a Pacific island named Tana, a small Pacific island at age 34. That was in 1858. There he would labor for the rest of his life on this this little island. You, of course, know in 1858, there's no planes, right? There's no, there's no Skype. There's no email. Um, and by the way, his island is filled with cannibals, headhunters. It's great sacrifice for him. 
A great sacrifice not just for him, but is for his family, especially for his father. And so when Patton sits down at the age of 81 to write his autobiography, he remembers a time 50 years earlier when his father walked him from his village towards Glasgow, where his ministry and travels would begin. And so 50 years later, delighting in the father that he had and the massive impact that his dad had on him, John Patton writes, I started out from my quiet country home on the road to Glasgow, literally on the road, for from Tothorwald to Kilmarnock, about 40 miles. Had to be done on foot, and thence to Glasgow by rail. Railways in those days were as yet few, and coach traveling was far beyond my purse. A small bundle tied up in my pocket handkerchief contained my Bible and all my personal belongings. Thus I was launched upon the ocean of life. I thought of the one who says, I know thy poverty, but thou art rich. My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my mind as it had been but yesterday. And tears on my cheeks as freely now as then, whenever memory steals me away to that scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying his hat in hand while his long flowing yellow hair streamed down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me, and his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on, the, on reaching the appointed parting place, He grasped my hand firmly for a minute in silence and then solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer. In tears we embraced and parted. I ran off as fast as I could and went about to turn the corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back. And saw him still standing with head uncovered where I had left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat in adieu, I was round the corner and out of sight in an instant. But my heart was too full and sore to carry me further. So I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. Then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out after me. He did not see me, and after he gazed eagerly in my direction for a while, he got down, set his face towards home, and began to return, his head still uncovered, and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears till his form faded from my gaze, and then hastening on my way, vowed deeply and often by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. Patton concludes, The appearance of my father when we parted, his advice, prayers and tears, the road, the dike, the climbing up on it, and then the walking away, have often, often, all through my life, risen vividly before my mind, and do so now while I'm writing as if it had been but an hour ago. 
in my earlier years, particularly when exposed to many temptations, his parting form rose before me as that of a guardian angel. It is deep gratitude which makes me here testify that the memory of that scene not only helped to keep me from prevailing sins, but also stimulated me in all my studies that I might not fall short of his hopes and in all my Christian duties that I might joyfully follow his shining example. I pray that I could be a father like that man was to John Patton. I pray that we could be fathers who have such an impact on our son's pursuit of Christ, even as Abraham sets off to do so with Isaac. Well, there he is, been committed to God, and everything seems to be going well, doesn't he? Doesn't it, as we see in verse 6? And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? You notice everybody's laughing here. This is a good time to laugh, isn't it? I mean, we need some laughter in our study of Genesis, don't we? When we did Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot and his daughters, and Abraham and Abimelech, it's, we need, it's time for some laughter. So she named, he names him Isaac, which of course is Hebrew for what? Laughter. There's lots of laughing. The old couple are laughing as they hold their tiny son. Maybe even Isaac's laughing, or at least burping, right? The whole camp's laughing, heaven's smiling, the heir of the covenant has finally been born. In fact, you remember, this is not the first laughter from Sarah. Sarah, in chapter 18, she also laughed when God came over for lunch and, and laughed at God, mocking God. And God said, why did you laugh? And her only conversation with God, she gets scared and lies to God and says, I didn't laugh. And God says, ends, this, ends the conversation, oh, yes, you did laugh, right? Why? why? Why does God press it home? Well, he wants to get it on the record, right? You laughed at me in mockery and bitterness, and now, because I've worked in your life, you're laughing again, but this time with joy and celebration. Right? There's two kinds of laughter, aren't there? There's the cynical laughter. We'll see that in verse 10, I think. And then there's the joyful laughter. Sarah scoffed at God. Sarah scoffed at his ability to do the miraculous. Maybe he'll give me a baby when I'm 50. Maybe 60. But 90? Come on. That's ridiculous, she must have thought. Oh, that old promise again. Right? It's a little late for that. And so she laughs in hopelessness, right? This is why many people reject Christianity. They laugh at it because it's ridiculous to them. They laugh at the supernatural. Well, maybe God exists, they'll say. Maybe even God works every once in a while. But the incarnation, come on. The resurrection, give me a break. The miraculous work of Jesus, oh, no, no. They laugh it off. They laugh it off. But those who trust in God, like Sarah would come to trust in God, he changes our laughter from mockery to joy and celebration. And I wonder, he might even do that for some of you here today. You might come in mocking Christianity. And then one day, if not today, you might say with your sister, God has made me laugh with joy as you walk into eternity, trusting in Christ. So here they are, they're very happy, it's a very joyful and wonderful event, right? Everything's going well. So what does that mean? It means there's trouble right around the corner, isn't there? Right? As we go to scene two, the removal of a rival. A rival. The trouble waits for a minute because we have this great verse in verse eight. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. Isaac has grown, right? He's ready to be weaned, which means he's now about three years old, just like that. 
goes from being born to three years old. Kids grow quickly, don't they? I turn around, I have teenagers. I don't know how that happened. My daughters, all of them, promised me uh, that they would not grow up. And uh, they all lied to their daddy, so pray for them, right? And they're all growing, getting older. Well, here they are, and uh, they're not upset that Isaac's three. In fact, this would be a great day of great celebration. Um, this is Isaac's big day, right? Um, they're, they're ecstatic. And the reason why is infant mortality was so high. Often you wouldn't even name a child to their one at this time because infant mortality was so extreme. And, um, and so you would, you, to help the child, you would nurse the child as long as you possibly could. And so usually they were weaned somewhere around three years old. And so the child's wean, we see there's this great celebration. He's healthy. He's strong. We're going to throw this huge party. There's hundreds of people there. This great feast we read in verse 8. And it's there at that great party that the conflict comes, as you see in verse 9. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who she had borne to Abraham laughing. He's laughing. Everyone's having a great time except for Ishmael. You remember him, right? Ishmael. Ishmael is the child of Abraham and Abraham's girlfriend, Hagar. Sarah, remember, Genesis 16 couldn't have a kid, so she says, sleep with my slave, and then I'll take her baby for my own baby. Now, believe it or not, that didn't work out so well. And, And in fact, Ishmael represents what the New Testament tells us, the human effort to fulfill God's promises of salvation. We saw that in Genesis 17. Well, Ishmael's grown up. He's probably about 16 years old now, and he's mocking his little brother Isaac, which is probably kind of easy to understand because now Isaac comes, and Isaac's the heir, and Isaac's the divine child of promise, and you're just an accident, uh, Ishmael. You're just, your mama's a slave, right? And and, and you're not really important anymore, and I trust that'd be very difficult for a 16-year-old boy. And there he is taunting his little brother at this great feast. There's food and drink and Abraham and Sarah are doting on little Isaac, and here comes uh, older brother Ishmael making his little brother cry at his birthday party. And well, that, that does something in Mama Bear. It uh, turns her laughter into fury, as you see in verse 10. So she said, this is Sarah, said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman. She has a name, by the way. Um, with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Right? You need to... Get rid of him. I mean, this 90-year-old lady has been waiting her whole life for a son. Now it's his big day, and some half-brother is making him cry. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you do? What do you do? Sarah says, he's got to go. It's time for him to leave. I mean, you could almost see her hands on her hips, can't you? Right? At this. What, what, what's going on here? Get rid of that woman and that woman's son. Right? And I don't know, ladies, can you, can you resonate with this? Your son's big birthday party? And your husband's girlfriend comes over, right? And, he, and, she, and, and, and they bring uh, her son, and her son starts mocking your, your little boy, right? That's a tough place to be, and she's not going to take it. And so she says, you, you have to get rid of him. He's bullying my little kid. We need to get him out of the house. In fact, how did, how did God describe Ishmael in Genesis 16? You remember? A wild donkey. You ever stand behind a wild donkey? Not for long, right? Okay. And that, right, Ishmael's going to be a fighter. Sarah sees this. My boy's three. This boy's 16. This is not a fair fight. He has to go. And this breaks Abraham's heart, as you see in verse 11. He's conflicted. Abraham, uh, excuse me, verse 11, and this thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of 
his son. He loves Ishmael. He's not sure what to do. And so once again, God shows up and instructs and gives guidance. Verse 12, but God said to Abraham, do not be displeased because of of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And so God says, you need to send him off. This is a difficult verse for me. In fact, a number of these verses are troubling. I understand Sarah's anger over the situation. I don't commend her for it. I think it was probably sinful. I understand it. I understand Abraham's sadness and confusion what to do here. But the question I have is, why is God taking Sarah's side? Right? Why, why cast out this child and the mother? And, and we're not told, of course. So I could only speculate. But I wonder if, if Ishmael is seriously a threat to Isaac. I wonder if there might be one day a rivalry over succession to this throne. And so God says, Abraham, listen to Sarah. She sees something coming down the line. You're too close to it, Abraham. You can't see it. But Ishmael's dangerous. And so we need to, we need to protect Isaac by getting rid of Ishmael. And so Ishmael is sent off. But before he is, God gives Abraham this wonderful promise there in verse 13. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. In other words, God says, I'm going to take care of him. I got this handled. And so you see, once again, God taking the mess that we create and overruling it for good and blessing. It's not that God says, listen, I'll bless Isaac and to the heck, the heck with all the rest of you. I don't care about the rest of you. No, he says, I love Ishmael too. I can bless them both. They'll be blessed in different ways. But Ishmael's going to be a great nation. Of course, he would be the founder of the Arab people. And God loves the Arab people. Amen? He does, right? God want, loves all nations on the earth, even the nations that reject him. Of course, many Arabs have come to believe in Christ, and even more so by the day. And God says, okay, I'm going to take care of him. Certainly Abraham's sad, but he obeys immediately, as we see Abraham often do. Verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed in water in the wilderness of Beersheba. Again, a confusing verse for me because he sends them off. Here's a skin of water, which we think holds about two gallons, and a loaf of bread. Which doesn't seem like a lot to send someone out with their child into the desert. Right? Have a good life. I mean, and Abraham's filthy rich. He's got camels, he's got donkeys, hundreds of servants, right? You think, you, you, here's a couple donkeys, you know, and, and, and you know, a, a camel maybe carrying a week's load of food or whatever, right? And, and, and I would want to take care of you. But no, she's like this homeless, flat, broke, single mom who has a loaf of bread to her name and no place to stay. There's no alimony. There's no child support. There's no help whatsoever. It makes you wonder what's going on here. I can only think that perhaps this is an act of faith from Abraham. God, you said you'll take care of her, so, so I'm going to let you take care of her. Right? You, and he will, but only after a period of trouble, as you see in verse 15. When the water in the skin was gone... She put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went out and sat opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. It just looks like a tragic end. That's what it looks like to Hagar. They're out of water. They're in the desert, the heat of the day. They're dying of, of dehydration or heat stroke. And so what she takes her son and she puts him in a shady place under a tree... And she says, okay, honey, we need to rest for a little bit. You rest here in the shade, 
And Mama's just going to go over there, okay? And, and she goes, what, about a bow shot away. Why? She can't bear to watch her son die. She can't bear to hear him cry. Right? And so she, she, she leaves thinking, I can't take care of him. I can't provide. I don't even know where we're supposed to go tonight. We have no food. We have no water. We have no one. We have nothing. And she lifts up her, her voice and weeps. She's crying her eyes out. It's just, it's just, it just looks like a throwaway mom with a throwaway son that no one cares about. And she thinks, this is it. My son and I are going to die. Well, she may be too far to hear Ishmael's cry, but God is not. He hears the cries of the distressed. And just like Isaac in the next chapter, here Ishmael is saved from the assured death by a sudden voice from heaven, as you see in verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Which I think is a funny question. Because it's pretty obvious. What's the matter, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. And so God calls. God what hears. What does Ishmael mean? Remember? Anybody remember? God hears. That's what Ishmael means. And God hears. God hears. And he comes to the rescue. Finally, he, he's, of course, Ishmael's not crying to God. She's not praying to God. But nevertheless, God intervenes. And here comes the angel of the Lord. Now, who's the angel of the Lord at Hamilton Baptist Church? That's Jesus, right? Jesus keeps showing up in these stories. And here comes Jesus, and he tells her, listen, stop crying. Up, verse 18, lift up the boy, hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Go get your son, grab his hand, grab my hand. I'm going to provide for you. In fact, I'm going to provide for you beyond your wildest dreams. I'm going to make you into a great nation. By the way, this is the second time Hagar's been kicked out of camp that no one seems to want her except for Jesus. No one wants this woman. It's like the Samaritan woman. No one wants her except one person, Jesus. And Jesus comes, and he begins to bless. You say, wait a second, Ishmael's not part of the chosen line. Yeah, I know. And yet God is concerned about her. God is not just simply, I'm going to bless Abraham and Sarah and, and, and the descendants through Isaac, right? No, God is concerned about the oppressed. God is concerned about the widow. God is concerned about the orphan. That's why many of you are going to gather here this afternoon uh, and a meaning to discuss how can we as Hamilton Baptist Church care for the orphans around us. We do that because God cares for the orphans around us. And we see that God is, is particularly interested in this woman, and he saves them, as you see in verse 19. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin of water and gave the boy a drink. She is so distraught that she misses that there's just a spring around the corner, over the hill. She, she's just... Her face is in her hands weeping, and Jesus comes by and says, oh, by the way, do you see that, that spring right over there? You ever get like that? Where life is so miserable, you're so scared, so uncertain, so filled with despair that you become blind to whatever God is doing around you. God shows up and says, hey, hey, sweetie, stop looking at your navel. Get up, let's go, and look what I'm doing in your life. I wonder if that would be a good prayer for some of you here. God, show me what you're doing in my life. Show me what you can do in my life. 
And God gives her an entire new start. They're starting over. He, God give you a new start if you trust in Jesus. Right? If you yield your life to Jesus. He says, hey, your life's not over. Let's go get a drink. You've got a whole life ahead. And, of course, he grows up. You see in verse 20. And God was with the boy. God was with the boy. He's with Ishmael. And he grew up. He lived in the wilderness. He became an expert with a bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. He's an archer. He's a hunter. He's a self-reliant, tough, tough kid. And here we see very clearly that God loves both these sons. And yet God chooses Isaac and not Ishmael. And the reason is, is because Ishmael represents salvation through human effort. Trying to scheme to bring about divine miracle by your own schemes. Isaac represents salvation through divine miracle. We, saw, we, we consider this in Genesis 17, Galatians 4, Paul, that's what we went to last time. But Paul also brings this up in Romans 9. Paul's struggling to understand why aren't the Jews coming to believe in the Messiah? Why are they being cut off? And so Paul asks this question in Romans 9. Does that mean God's promises to the Jewish people have failed? He says, has the word of God failed? Because I thought, I thought it's through Isaac that the descendants would be named. No, he goes on and says, for all Israel are not descended from Israel. What does that mean? Well, it means the heir to the promises of Abraham are not a matter of ethnicity, but a matter of miraculous birth. And he goes on to explain that Isaac is not an example that all the Jews are in the covenant. Isaac is an example of our need for God to work miraculously in our life. That Isaac, by miraculous birth, shows that salvation, whether you're a Jew or an Arab or an American, comes not by our own effort, but by a divine act of birth within us. That's, if you're a Christian today, that's how you became a Christian. You understand, if you're a Christian, you were born again in a miraculous way, to use the language of Jesus. That our old life, you had an old life, that was natural. You were born into sin. You were born into rebellion. You are born into self-focus. That's normal. We all understand that. No one looks at you and says, wow, they sinned. How do they do that? Right? That's normal. We all do that. But when you become a Christian, you become a child of promise. You become born by divine power. And we ought to be humbled by that. That all of the children of God have become that way by sovereign grace and not by human effort. That happens in all of our lives because the true son of promise was rejected. See, Isaac points us to a true son of promise. In fact, Ishmael does as well. In fact, Ishmael shows us just a little glimpse, doesn't he, of another son who would be rejected by his people, of another son who, as the author of Hebrews says, would be sent out of the camp, of another son who will be cast out by his father, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only difference is that when Jesus is dying, God doesn't hear his cry. God doesn't come to the rescue. God lets him die. Why? So that all of us, God, when we cry out for God, save me, I'm dying, God will come and save us because he did not save Jesus. He instead bore the sin that I've done and what you've done and all who trust in him would have done. He took that upon himself. God turned his back upon him, let Jesus receive the penalty of our sin so that whenever we get to that point of desperation and say, God, save me, he will by no work of, that you could do. 
In fact, the Bible says if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if, if you confess with your mouth, what is it? Someone help me out here. Romans 10, 13, I say this every week. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You're saved. So you can cry out to God, right? And God will come and save you because he ignored the cries of Jesus Christ, right? Then he could do that even this very day, bringing great peace in your life as we turn lastly and quickly to a covenant of peace, a covenant of peace. He's dealt with the first threat, right, Ishmael. Now he deals with the second, a pagan king, verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. Okay, so here's Abraham and Abimelech. Now, this is not their first encounter, right? If you were here last week, the whole chapter was about these two. Remember, Abraham exposed Abimelech to sin. He lied about Sarah, gave Sarah to this man to be this man's wife. God shows up, says, I'm going to destroy your entire city. Exposes him to sin, exposes him to divine wrath. And then for good measure, in order to justify his deceit, Abraham insults Abimelech and his entire country. And so Abimelech shows up and he says, hey, promise not to deal falsely with me. There in verse 23. Don't lie to me anymore. Okay, that's what he's saying. Now, we would have understand if Abimelech hated Abraham, and yet it's undeniable, isn't it, that the hand of God's blessing is upon him. That's what he says. It's clear to me that God is blessing you. After all, your wife's 90, and you just had a baby. Okay? And God told me you're his prophet, and you prayed, and our entire country was healed, and so God is with you, and God is blessing you. That's clear to me. I'm a pagan. I don't believe in what you believe, but I, one thing I know for certain is God's doing something in your life. I wonder if there's something in us that would, would bring that kind of notice from the world in our life. I wonder if the non-believers around us would say, hey, I don't believe what you believe, but there's something going on in your life. You're being blessed. And your family looks different than my family, and there seems to be peace and joy, and the way you and your wife interact, that seems different than us, and there just seems to be something about you that the world would take notice and saying, listen, it's evident that God's blessing is on them. Well, it's clear here. And so he says, Abimelech must have thought, I need to get on good terms with this guy before he becomes more powerful than I. So they signed this peace treaty. And by the way, you notice Abimelech's not alone. He's got Phicol with him his uh, commander, and so here he is. He wants to have a peace treaty with Abraham. He brings his general. By the way, have you met the commander of my army, right? And so you should meet him as we think about peace. Abraham agrees there in verse 24, and Abraham said, I will swear. So both men, I think this is wonderful, have a concern for peace. I think it's good to see a man of God and a pagan king on good terms. I think that's the way it probably should be, as, at least as, as it is available to us as Christians. I think Christians, we ought to cooperate with non-Christians in, in many areas that we're allowed to. We ought to, to work with our government to see our children are educated, to see the poor are cared for, to see the orphans have families. This is why the, the teenagers, every week you pack up backpacks full of food for some impoverished children living here in Hamilton. And you feed them. This church feeds these children through our public school system 
every weekend of the year throughout the school year. This is why on Orphan Care Sunday in January, we invited non-Christian government workers to come and attend our service because we want to cooperate with them on things that God calls us to work in, like the care for orphans. I, I think this is important just to emphasize because we live in a day, don't we, especially among American evangelicals, that, that there seems a tendency, at least maybe not just in our group, but in all groups, that we literally hate people that have a different political point of view, right? We, 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 we want their careers to blow up. We, we get giddy with joy at the idea of locking them up. That thrills us with, to no end. And I just think it, it really mars the gospel that we say we believe. I just want to remind you what we learned from Titus last fall. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. That's what we're to be. Christians are to be submissive. We are to be the best of all citizens. And when we are, we commend the gospel. I think that's our goal, isn't it? Isn't our goal the advance of King Jesus and not a political position? Okay, it was one, it was two of us that agree. All right, we'll meet afterwards. We'll start, start our own group. Listen, this is Abraham says, hey, let's work together. Let's work together. You and I don't see eye to eye on everything. Let's work together. Let there be peace between us. And so Abraham and Abimelech enter this non-aggression covenant, which, of course, brings up an issue of justice. Peace requires justice. As you see in verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I, I don't know who has done this thing. And you did not tell me, I have not heard of it until today. I don't know if that's true or not, but he's pleading ignorance. Evidently, Abraham dug a well. It was stolen by Abimelech's man. Can you imagine you go on vacation and your neighbor puts a fence through your yard, right? So there's, that's going to be some issues, right? You want to have peace with your neighbor? You're going to have to figure that out first. You're going to have to deal with that. And so they need to deal with this. Water, as you just saw in the previous story, is essential to life in this part of the country. Wars have been fought over water. And, and Abraham's simply trying to avoid that. And so Abraham brings this up. If we don't solve this problem over the well, as much as we want to promise good for each other, that's going to bring conflict in the coming days. And so they seek to settle it, as you see in verse 27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, The seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I have dug this well. Therefore, the place was called Beersheba. Beersheba means the well of seven. Uh, because, because there both of them swore an oath. Verse 32, so they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. And so you see them working. There's some exchange of animals. And uh, they want to make sure we're all on good terms here. And Abimelech says, okay, it's yours. I take the, the animals. You can have the well. I'm not sure how, how uh, good Abimelech is at keeping his promises because he's going to have this, the same well is going to come up with Abimelech and Phicol with Isaac in Genesis chapter 26. They're going to be fighting over this thing again. But here at least there's peace for a time, which leads us to a wonderful verse in verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And so just to summarize verse 33, um, Abraham planted a tree and praised God. 
Now, you know I'm a tree-hugging Californian, and so I like that verse. Plant a tree, praise God, and there Abraham's doing it. What, why is he planting a tree? Well, because he's going to stick around. Right? You don't plant a tree if you're renting. So he's settling down, isn't he? So he's a tamarisk tree, a desert tree, narrow leaves, provides shade. He, he thinks, listen, we're, we just need, we're going to hang out here for a while. My son's going to grow up playing in this tree. I mean, this is it's a good ending, isn't it? He has his, finally has his kid, right? He has his wife. He's dealt with some sin issues, has a well. He has peace with the neighbors. I mean, things are good. And so what's he doing? He praises God. God praise you. I just thank you. Everything seems to be good. He calls on the name of the Lord. You ever long for this day? Married. You got kids. Things are paid for. There's peace in your home. Sin has been repented of. Life is just good. You ought to thank God for that. You ought to call on the name of the Lord. Thank you, God. My life is good because you've blessed us. And there he is. He's settling down in Beersheba. You'll see a repeated phrase in the Old Testament from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is in the far north of the promised land. Beersheba is in the southern desert. So 1 Samuel 3, for instance, all of Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was a prophet of the Lord. Beersheba is where the, the, the patriarchs often remain down in the southern desert. And, and uh, this, this whole land is, of course, the land that was been promised to them by this God whom I love what Abraham calls him there in verse 33. What? The everlasting God. The everlasting God. That's just an awesome view of God, isn't it? You're the eternal God. You you're fulfilling your plan. And old age and barrenness is not going to stop you. You're the eternal God. And a rival heir and threatening kings aren't going to stop you. You're the eternal God. You're going to fulfill your plan. Of course, the plan's not fulfilled, is it? Because he's still living in this land, not as an owner, but a sojourner. So we come to our last verse, verse 34. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. He's just sojourning there. He doesn't own it. Kind of reminds us of us. We're sojourners here too. You believe that? We wait, Christian, for the promised Son to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, then we inherit the permanent land of promise. And the Bible says in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. That's right. Our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to his control. So what we do, just like Abraham, we, are, we, we live as sojourners in eager expectation as we seek peace with our neighbors among us, living for the glory of God with faith in his promise, praising God that one day the land in which we live shall be ours through Jesus Christ. Amen? Our Father, we're thankful that one day our Lord is coming. And all the troubles of this life will be behind us. Until that day, Father, will you help us to trust you? What a, what a beautiful kind of kaleidoscope of story after story of your faithfulness, of you working and guiding and leading. I just pray that you would bless us through this kind of manifold passage that we consider this morning. I think we might be in awe of you and might, might find our hearts drawn to you for your power and your instruction in our lives. Help us, even as we live as Christians in this land that you've brought us, even as we sojourners here, 
to live lives that, that give off the appearance that we have been blessed because we are. We are blessed by you. And let us not fight against what your work you're doing in our lives, but let us receive it, let us repent, let us follow, that we too, like Abraham, might live this blessed life in this land which you guide us. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.